This is the Geoversive Earth Intelligence Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back, and thank you for spending your time on the second part of these two episodes on the rights of nature. Because it's our belief that in order to turn back climate change, you just can't simply talk about all of the unusual weather events that we're seeing. But we have to talk about all of the follow-on effects. And that can stem from finance, economics, food security. It can be anything you can think of. But at the root of it all is our understanding and our belief that nature is preeminent. Our protection of the natural world will help alleviate, according to Joe Robertson, help alleviate the worst of the effects of climate change. I'm joined by Myra Jackson, again, visiting professor and fellow at Colorado College, and she is one of the principals in the UN's adoption of the Sustainable Development Goals, which we'll talk a lot more about as we go on. She's a diplomat of the biosphere and a UN representative and focal point on climate change, and today we're going to continue to rely on her vast knowledge of earth law and the history of the rights of nature movement. And Joe Robertson is the founder of Geoversive, a member of the Food System Economics Commission, lead strategist for Resilience Intel Climate Smart Finance Initiative, and I'm Don Shelby, a career journalist and investigative reporter. Well, welcome back to both of you as we continue this discussion. Do you think that this is a discussion that this subject will resonate with? I do, Don. I, you know, the resonance to me is even clearer with COVID. I'm beginning to believe that 2020 will, of course, be defined by COVID, but that it is the, it's like taking a yellow marker and highlighting all of the concerns that we have around the globe with what is going on with nature. And by that, what I'm really saying is that nature is treated as a commodity and has no formal rights or a voice in government. And this is true of many people as well, and certainly other members of the natural world, the community of Earth. So the void, to me, is directly at the core of our global destruction ongoing and endured by nature that we easily recognize on the margins. And now we have COVID. I'm calling it BC. We will know ourselves as before COVID and after COVID. Many people do not know that in the theory of change related to the framework on the sustainable development goals is a nature-based approach. Is that the UN harmony with nature approach? Well, we do have in an indicator at 12.8 that specifically refers to harmony with nature as an approach. You know, where we're really headed in terms of rights of nature is this legal revolution in the law that also is going toward an Earth-centric approach to our challenges and not simply an anthropocentric or human-based approach to our challenges. And that is a fundamental shift as well. We're looking at looking at the whole community of life. Myra, you are a California woman from the earliest days, and out in your neck of the woods of your birth uh, state, Santa Monica began a small step forward 
and you knew the people involved in all of that, but they wanted to protect their city. And as I began to study that, I was a bit confused because I was wondering whether they were protecting nature or if they were trying to protect themselves through protecting nature, or if there is actually any difference. The truth is there's not a difference. However, we do not get the fulsome response or result when we are putting humans at the center of that debate. And here's an example. I mean, what happens with environmental law and why environmental law is not up to the task? You can see harm being done to nature, and often the law will not take action unless you can cite harm being done to people. So here you skip over animal life, the life within ecosystems and habitats, as if the harm done to earth systems, animals, and other species has no impact on humans. Well, the reality is, this is where we are off course. What happens to the smallest of life has an ultimate impact on all of us. That's the point. That's where the shift needs to occur, is having enough sensitivity to understand that how we care for nature is an assurance of care for ourselves and for the future generations to come. But this is the fundamental shift that needs to occur. I'm reminded of a passage that I read in a book that was uh, formative in my thinking by uh, a preeminent entomologist who said that if you weighed every ant on earth, that the ants would outweigh all of human beings by a order of magnitude. And they turn more earth than all of the plows that have ever turned land, arable land, in all of human time. We would perish without the ant, but we have no trepidation going on a picnic and pouring diazinon down an anthill. And we have to stop that. Joe, you have a, a another angle on rights of nature that you see coming together in a way that makes a great deal of sense to me. You want to expand on your take on rights of nature from the perspective of a person who has attended all of the cops, who's attended all of the meetings, who has been part of food security? Sure. You know, um, I think the first thing is to say that the rights of nature are coextensive with human rights. Human rights don't work, can't be fully protected without protecting the rights of nature. And the rights of nature as we discussed last time, are intrinsic, just like human rights are. They exist on their own, whether we recognize them or not. Now, when we look at the way that nation states work together, there are a number of benefits to having a nation state represent you. But nation states also have shortcomings as institutional bodies. It is very difficult for an institution that represents millions or hundreds of millions of people to be able to say, this is what our people need in any succinct way, because there are so many different needs. There are so many different kinds of safety and security. There are so many different ways of serving the people. And so for a nation state to say, this is our position, this is what we argue for, it tends to lend itself to a short-term approach to what 
national interest means. We would like to have energy. We would like to extract energy from the ground. We have infrastructure that requires us to take that fuel and burn it. Then there's pollution, but we consider it to be in our national interest somehow to let that all happen. A nation state that's making that argument may be serving some short-term need or purpose, uh, but it's doing it in a way that's not sustainable. And one of the key leverage points for making sure that nation states can do better is for them to have to honor the rights of nature, for them to have to essentially negotiate not only for themselves, not only for their people, not only for interests that they perceive as immediate and material, but also negotiate in alignment with the rights of natural systems without which none of what they're negotiating for even begins to make sense. And so rights of nature provide a kind of expanded capability for an intergovernmental negotiation. It allows everybody to think a little bit more clearly about where the boundaries are and a little bit more clearly about what it means to serve their people well. Myra, let me return for just a moment to the indigenous element of this, of indigenous and uh, oppressed and enslaved people through history and the relationship to the way we treat nature and the way we have treated people in whatever minority they were in, in whatever continent they were in. Can we think of restoring a right to nature without thinking concomitantly about restoring the rights of individuals who have had rights taken from them? The move toward a rights of nature approach and a understanding of it in the way that indigenous hold rights of nature, that particular segmentation of any life from that paradigm would not make any sense. It would not compute, let's just say, because all life has a right to existence, and that's the starting place. So these things are what we, I call the three eyes. And what we tried to emphasize coming out of the SDG framework was necessary in order to think it through is that when you're dealing with the three eyes of which I call the interconnectedness, interrelatedness, interdependence, that has meaning. It means we are bound up in the fate of each other. We have a word for that in South Africa called Ubuntu. And it's just really clear. There's a clear understanding about that amongst indigenous peoples, first peoples. So no, there's not a way to trump over, you know, you don't go to nature's rights and leave behind people who are also a part of nature. And I think this is why it's really important to know that nature must have a voice in international treaties. Those treaties and these institutions that bear down on how we conduct ourselves on the planet, nation state to nation state, territory to territory. Here's where the big shift comes. And and I, you know, no matter what's going down on climate change, the scientists that I work closely with on planetary boundaries at Stockholm Resilience Center came out of the whole conversation saying, this is the part we have to get right. And it has to be forged through the social dimension. People have to have a change from the dream we've been dreaming, as as the indigenous would say, the dream we've been dreaming in the north of separation will destroy the planet. 
But Myra, I want to be completely down to earth on this and and Frank. I don't like who wins all the time, but I, I think I know who wins. You're up against with these ideas that are global in nature and ancient through indigenous knowledge and spirituality. That if someone says there is something valuable in the ground there, I'm going to dig it out and your sacredness be damned because it's more important to me to get cadmium for cell phones than it is to poison an entire ecosystem. They win. The ones who want that which is money will win. How has New Zealand, how has Ecuador, how has Bolivia stemmed that? How have they stopped the extraction and the damage and the destruction when you can't show a financial value, unless you can, you can't show a financial value in the protection of nature? Oh boy, you know, this one, uh, this is, this is why I keep my eyes on New Zealand and the experiment that's going on there. Uh, you know, everyone is asking that we prove something against what I call an aberrant system. And I do think we are at a place where the, the collapsed nature of the money system is known. I do not see it as something that can be sustained and maintained. And I have to say, I think what a country like New Zealand has the potential of doing is showing the way out of money-based systems that do not signal correctly where investments need to go. So there does need to be a movement from the false economy. And I have to say, Don, that we will continue to see what you have known historically to be true, and I as well. We will continue to destroy the planet if the economy does not change its algorithms. If it doesn't understand the intrinsic That's right. value, That's including right. the financial value. Correct. I think so, at somewhere along the line, uh, Joe, I think... Somebody has to put a price tag on nature. Someone has to say, and I know it's been said in papers before, but by preserving nature, we are putting off a payment due down the road that we will eventually have to pay at a price too high for our economies. It's an interesting idea, right? The pr what is the price? What is the cost? And I, I tend to think a little bit more along the lines of cost when we think about nature and protecting nature, because uh, when we get down the road, if we have just continued uh, what Myra called the false economy, if we have just continued an extractive and exploitative approach to natural resources, and we have ignored not only the rights of nature, but the health and well-being of natural systems and what that means for our future, when we get to that place where the consequences force us to pay what is due, we won't be able to pay it. it. There won't be enough money in the world. There won't be enough technology and innovation to get us out of that mess. The payment will be extinction. Our economic models have a hard time understanding that because they look at numbers. They look at the numbers inherent in money and measurements of money like GDP, gross domestic product, how many dollars spent total in a year in a particular country. And so any 
tweaking you do to those models is always going to leave you with some economy. The idea that nothing will be there is inconceivable in that mathematical model. But nature doesn't really think about or care about money. Nature is essentially this constantly moving interactive system of life, making life and feeding life and sustaining life. And if you strip away its ability to do that, then everything you think you know about money and economics ceases to be uh, relevant. So with that as background, I would say this. I think that there is a way in which we're going to start to understand how that cost is distributed across everything. We may find that the cost of destroying nature is thousands of times the total annual output of the economy of the world. And that's not an irrelevant number. We then have to break that down and think about what are the things that are causing it to get worse and where are the things that we, that, that make it better and how can we value those and can we shift investment and shift incentives to those things that are going to protect us and protect the natural systems that sustain us. You know, if you look at what all those different interactions do, this particular chemical destroys pollinator populations. Well, that makes it much harder to grow food. So what's the point of using that particular chemical? Um, that's a pretty simple case. Um, this, this chemical might not do that, but it does have this impact on the human population. And so you're producing food to, in theory, nourish people, but then you're making them unhealthy and sick. And what sense does that make? When you start balancing all of those things out, you can get a sense of the overall resilience value of a particular activity and an activity that has no positive resilience value and only destructive value for everyone else isn't going to be able to get away with saying, but we have really high profits 10 or 20 years from now that that's simply not going to work anymore. And what we're starting to see is there is a hunger in the financial sector, including central banks, finance ministries, uh, but also private banks and major institutional investors to understand how those effects ripple through the economy and where they can be valued and where that value can be shifted for the better. There is a hunger to attach earth science observation systems to financial and socioeconomic analysis so that the data that we think of as financial decision-making data is actually directly informed by nature. And the more we do that, the smarter we're going to get, the easier it's going to be to know what we're doing and whether it's healthy or whether it's destructive. And the more of that practice the world has, the harder it will be for people to compete who aren't thinking about how to build resilience for everyone else. Myra, I'd like you to take the last few minutes and uh, tell me what's on your heart. Tell our listeners what's on your heart, because this subject is so dear to you, and you have done so much study and so much work uh, to move these ideas along. I want you to uh, conclude this episode 11 with that which you want everyone to know. What I want everyone to know is that we have earth systems that can help us, can help us blossom as humanity on the earth. And these earth systems are regenerative. There's a lot we can learn from nature. And I mean learn to apply. Nature's very practical in everything that it does. 
It manages to feed us, take care of us in ways we can't even compute. Much of it is invisible to us. But today, we still have people on the planet that die without disease. And they die without disease because they live intimately linked to the ecosystems in which they live. And the variants in the diets are vast, from carbohydrates to the fat of of sea animals. But they live and they're active until they die. This is the way we were designed. And so when we begin to see, as we exhaust the planet and as we see more pandemic, we'll have to get serious. And we're there right now. We're not going backwards. We've been forced to slow down. And in the slowdown, we have been able to see the freshwater systems of the planet regenerate and purify the air in short order from us setting aside. I want to keep bringing back what COVID-19 revealed in terms of the regenerative power of freshwater systems. If we begin there, we begin to absolutely transform the biosphere. So I just want to leave that there is an enormous ray of hope if we partner and collaborate with nature for our future. Thank you very much, Myra. Thank you, Joe. This has been Geoversity's Earth Intelligence, Episode 11. We're going to take a break for the holidays. Hope you had good holidays along the line and that you were able to get as close to loved ones as you possibly could and maybe even to get outside and celebrate that great creation we call nature. Thank you very much for being with us. If you like these podcasts, please put it on your social media and let people know where we are. We're on all the platforms right now for podcasts. Thank you very much for being with us. I'm Don Shelby, and we'll see you next time in January. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays to you.